Hi, I'm June Cohen. We are so excited to bring you these brave anonymous speakers in our first season of Sincerely X. If you have an idea you'd like to share on the program, tell us about it. Write to us at go.ted.com slash sincerelyx. That's go.ted.com slash sincerelyx. And now, here's our new episode, Sad in Silicon Valley. Our most intimate experience can be our greatest inspiration. The place where ideas are born. But what if those ideas stay in hiding? What if they never have the chance to be shared? This show creates a safe space for giving talks anonymously. We value ideas over identity, substance over style. You cannot talk publicly about it. impacted my whole life. I just don't have the constitution to get up on a stage and give a talk. I never told anyone. From TED and Audible, this is Sincerely X. I still don't remember those lost three days. The day my life changed came a couple of months after my first company went public. I went to sleep a successful CEO. All of a sudden, an ice pick, like, pierced my eye and burrowed deep into my brain. And woke up a mental health patient? Eventually, the candle burns to the center. Every day, I woke up pissed off at the world. I was desperate. I had no idea who the guy on the couch was. Everyone hides it. This speaker is a successful entrepreneur. He started a company, took it public, invests in other startups. If you follow the tech world, you probably know the type. But he has another way of describing himself. Well, I'm a complete nerd at heart. A lot of things about the speaker's story were very familiar to me. The nerdiness, the passion, the ambition. When he shared his idea on our very first call, I heard confidence and composure. I could easily imagine him in boardrooms and pitch meetings. All of these thoughts of the size of the problem, my personal experience with the problem, and my hacker brain says, hey, I think I've figured some stuff out for me, but it's been really a long time and really expensive and really inefficient. And I want to solve that problem for other people. Listening to him on that call, I never in a million years would have guessed how much he struggles. This hard-charging, confident creator found himself facing a mental health crisis at the apex of his career. This is the story of someone who very suddenly unravels after he got everything he thought he wanted. He was diagnosed with depression, and the lack of solutions baffled him. As a culture and a technology and a society, we kind of suck at solving mental health. My experience took too long, cost too much money, and was too inaccessible for anyone but the 1%, which I am. (laughs) And that realization in the last two or three years just pissed me off. He's here on Sincerely X to share what he learned and inspire new solutions. We may have disguised his voice to help protect his anonymity, and I asked him why that matters. As much as I'm trying to get through this and encourage other people to talk about it, when you're in a board meeting and you're telling a CEO how to run his company, if in the back of his mind he's thinking, 
fuck, that guy's on Prozac. Why am I going to listen to him? It's just not a dynamic you really want out there in the world. I'd like the idea to speak for itself. Well, part of the story is very personal. Variations of that story have happened to hundreds of my friends who don't talk about it. He may well be speaking for hundreds, but what follows is this speaker's personal journey and the idea that grew from it. And now, the talk. Many of us have a story about the day everything changed in our lives. You know, the day you can clearly look back and feel the before and the after. Maybe your wedding day or the birth of your first child. I'm a serial entrepreneur and technology venture capitalist. And for many of us in Silicon Valley, the launch or IPO of our first company is that day. Those were all big days for me, but they weren't the day that changed everything. The day my life changed came a couple of months after my first company went public and all the hoopla died down. My wife, the love of my life, woke me up from what I thought was a lazy fall afternoon nap on the couch. Hey, she said, are you going to get up or would you like me to call the guys in the white jackets? Huh? I said, or maybe it was, huh? What? Apparently, I'd been lying there for three days without eating or going to the bathroom. My muscles ached, my chest burned, I gasped for air. The TV seemed unbearably loud. All of a sudden, an ice pick like pierced my eye and burrowed deep into my brain. She shook me. I'm calling someone, she said. And she did. I still don't remember those lost three days. You know, I, I went to sleep a successful CEO who had accomplished pretty much every major goal I had in life and woke up a mental health patient. Really, world? Now you give me this shit sandwich? I had no idea who the guy on the couch was. And yet there I was, stuck on my $35,000 handmade piece of Italian perfection, unable to give a shit about life. Literally. After those days on the couch, a crushing black fog descended around my head, causing me to lose interest in pretty much everything. Playing with my newborn daughter became a chore. Watching Barney with her caused me more than once to smash the TV while she cried. I went through a lot of TVs. My motorcycle sat unridden in the garage. My surfboards collected dust. When I thought about leaving my house, my head became crushed in a vice. Every day I woke up pissed off at the world. God damn it, I would say way too often at my wife or others. Friends, they stopped calling. The fatigue was numbing and constant. The diagnosis came back a couple of months later. Major depression accompanied by episodes of generalized anxiety disorder. The doctors were speaking some kind of foreign language. What are they saying, I thought. What does this mean? I thought, are you kidding me? I can't be crazy. I've got too much to do. This is not part of the plan. So started my haphazard journey into the bowels of our mental health system and how we treat the mentally ill in our society. I've spent the last decade and a half trying to figure out what happened and 
who was that guy on the couch? I consider myself a pretty smart guy, being a card-carrying member of Silicon Valley, and yet I missed the signs of mental illness in my own life until it was too late. As a patient, I've been frustrated by the mental health care industry that has been almost completely immune to the massive technology innovation going on around it and continues to fight a modern war with decades-old tools. For a guy with a supercomputer in his pocket and a telephone on my wrist, it was like going back to being bled by leeches. Not only did this piss me off, my gut told me it could be solved with some Silicon Valley-style disruption. It's the fall of 2000, and I have to shop for a product I know nothing about. I'm embarrassed to need and terrified anyone will find out I'm buying. Do I need a psychologist or a psychiatrist? Individual or group therapy? What's the difference? How do I even start? So I asked my primary care doctor for a referral. Out of the four psychiatrist referrals, only one could see me within a week. In the 15-minute appointment the doctor graciously bestowed upon me, we spent exactly seven and a half minutes discussing symptoms. Then for two and a half minutes, we described medication options. And for the last five minutes, we filled out insurance paperwork. I left with a prescription, but no more knowledge of what had happened to me. He had a prescription hammer, and I was a nail. For understanding, he told me I had to go see a psychologist for talk therapy. Oh, and the drugs are going to take a couple of weeks to kick in. My insurance plan had only half a dozen or so psychologists. None of them were taking new patients. I was desperate. So I started cold calling random doctors searching for an opening. About the time the drugs started to kick in, I found a guy and paid out of pocket for him. During our sessions, he made me do all the talking and never asked any questions nor offered any opinions about my symptoms. His only advice was to come more frequently and talk more. Six months and $6,000 later, I left his care still suffering and no closer to understanding what was going on. In that first decade of my search, I cycled through five different talk therapists, four different anti-depression and anxiety drugs, two residential programs, and even a couple of 12-step programs. I had spent over $300,000 trying to figure this out, but was still experiencing debilitating bouts of depression regularly. What the hell? A Ferrari's worth of mental health care and still no better? I should have bought the Ferrari. The leeches just weren't working for me. You see, the current mental health model blames negative behavior largely on social factors and trauma, while building interventions almost exclusively with talk therapy and drugs without any diagnostic data. Patients largely self-report their symptoms. The clear majority of treatments are symptomatic. There are almost no cures for mental illness. There are no generally accepted data-driven measurements either of the patient's condition or the effectiveness of the treatments. There's no stethoscope to hear anxiety. There's no EKG that can measure loneliness. It's all very squishy and subjective. Yet new research is showing how mental health is connected to a bunch of things that we can now measure, including brain health, gut bacteria, genetics, mineral balance, hormone levels, and more. You know, we could collect data in all these areas and feed it into new mental health models. Would you let a brain surgeon make an operation to remove a tumor without getting images first? No way. 
Yet when I first walked into my first therapist office, he didn't order any test. He just wanted to talk. He probably wouldn't even know what to do with all the big data about my mental health. The new models have not been built yet. But we're sure spending a lot on the old models. When I looked at the dollars, mental health spending is the fastest growing cost in healthcare, increasing over four times in the last 30 years. The world spends more on mental health care than we do to fight cancer, over six trillion worldwide. Despite all we were spending, it's estimated that over two thirds of the people who could benefit from quality mental health care don't have access. People who do have access to help are largely having their symptoms masked by drugs. The bottom line is that the current mental health care model doesn't only not scale well, it's failing to cure or even reach most of the patients that are suffering. My VC brain was on full alert. Huge market, frustrated patient customers, old technology, current solutions not scaling. Why isn't Silicon Valley all over this? It may very well come down to stigma. In private conversations, nearly 100% of my friends have admitted some form of depression, anxiety, or mood disorder. Yet no one talks about it at dinner parties. Everyone hides it. There remains a strong fear of admitting any kind of mental weakness can push you off the fast track. I suspect this is true everywhere, but in my Silicon Valley world, the worry comes down to, what if investors bail? What if customers bail? What would employees do if they knew? I've had plenty of startup founders tell me they want to fail fast in product design, but would never admit any kind of brain failure. Mental health is a hot potato no one in polite society wants to touch or talk about. Hey, even me, here I am giving an anonymous talk about this stuff. I can't help but think of the way Silicon Valley is failing here. Not only are we not tackling the problem of mental health, but our products are also, in many ways, making the problem worse. Technology is actually contributing to the overall decline in mental wellness by isolating us and enabling us, as Sherry Turkle says, to be alone together. In this age of explosive growth of internet connectivity, we feel more alone. The percentage of Americans saying they feel lonely has doubled since 1980 to over 40% of us. Yet my VC brain kept reminding me that Silicon Valley should have solutions here. The big barriers to mental wellness are cost, access, and privacy. <laughs> Turns out Silicon Valley is actually really great at driving down the cost of delivering products and services, increasing access through always-on, always-with-you devices, and using the privacy of encryption and personalization of big data to drive securely private and massively personalized solutions at scale. I thought, man, I can push a button and have a burrito delivered by drone, but I have to pay 250 bucks an hour to actually drive somewhere and talk to a therapist who won't even use data to analyze what's wrong with me? <laughs> yeah, that's a fail. With the addition of a couple of new drugs, we're delivering mental health treatments today basically the same way we have been for over 100 years. The question is why? And is there a better way?
So I set out to find the underground innovators using modern technologies to deliver innovative mental health solutions. While I was looking for solutions to my own mental health issues, I found a couple of quite possibly crazy heretics who, maybe a decade from now, might be called geniuses. Let me tell you about a couple of the crazies I discovered on my journey. The Durkheim Project has been funded by DARPA to develop a social media scraper that uses big data analytics to identify vets at the risk of suicide. Mental illness is a contributing factor in over 90% of the suicides, and yet less than a third of suicide victims access mental health services in the six months leading up to their suicide. Most of their family and friends don't even know the early warning signs, but technology might be able to. Yeah, this is straight up profiling, but the very same data that's being used to target ads at you today could possibly one day save your life. Recently, companies like InstaWell have combined modern AI technologies with real-life therapists to deliver counseling very cost-effectively and scalably over modern technology channels, including Slack, Android, iPhone, and Facebook. I've had hours of chats with these technologies and more. They're actually better than my first therapist and cheaper. This kind of Silicon Valley disruption is exactly what I'm rooting for, and so should you. I met another guy with a truly audacious and eccentric idea, Dave Asprey, the inventor of Bulletproof Coffee. With his 40 years of Zen project, he started with two pretty simple questions. First, what if we could use modern technology to manufacture the brain state of a monk who had been meditating for 40 years? And second, how would the world change if we could accelerate a lifetime of enlightenment into, say, just one week? An inability to control the limbic system is a common underlying factor in most mental disorders. People have been doing meditation, yoga, and other spiritual practices to build control over the limbic system for thousands of years. But these things take a long time, and only recently have we been able to measure how these processes even work. At 40 years of Zen, they've designed custom hardware and software technologies that can measure and significantly accelerate your brain function. I've been through an early version of this training, and it has been an important part of my own mental health recovery. When I started looking for mental health solutions 16 years ago, the state of art technology was still what old white guys in Austria had invented. Today, we have much more technology and data, but it's not being applied to the mental health problem at scale. There are a few mad scientists pushing the boundaries, and we need more. My own path to mental wellness has included some of these crazy ideas, and I can tell you I prefer them to the leeches. There is hope for all of us. I'm also happy to report that I figured out who that guy on the couch was. He was me, the darkest side of all of us. I just ignored him and never talked to him, so he got pissed off and took over my life for a while. Now I know the guy on the couch. He's not a stranger. While sometimes I still do battle with him, I'm no longer afraid of him. But I do wish technology had helped me talk to him rather than helping me hide. I wish I'd gotten to know him sooner. And I wish I had the Ferrari instead of my therapists. It's time for all of us to get comfortable talking to our darker selves. To get familiar with the stranger on our own couches. The longer we ignore him or her, the more difficult the reconciliation will be. 
And the more of us that hide our mental challenges, the less likely we are to find solutions together. Hey, I know this is hard and scary, but if I can get off the couch and do this Sincerely X talk, you can start your own journey. And damn it, it's time for Silicon Valley to start building scalable, affordable, ubiquitous solutions that actually build positive mental health care for everyone. We can't afford another doubling of lonely people in the next 20 years. I'm reminded of how Steve Jobs famously closed the deal with John Scully to come over and run Apple by asking, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life or do you want to come with me and change the world? I have a similar challenge to the technology companies of today. Do you want to just sell me more stuff or are you going to actually help us become better humans? I know what I'm going to be doing. You gave the talk you came to give. How do you feel? I feel like I'm going to cry or something. <laughs> I hope it starts a conversation because it, with modern technology, it doesn't need to be this hard. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky in a lot of ways and then I had the time and resources to try to figure it out. And I'm not saying I'm done by any stretch of the imagination. But, um, you know, the traditional Silicon Valley way of just trying to muscle through everything and macho it out, um, I don't think it ends well. This question of what ends well and why really stuck with me after talking to the speaker. Over the last 15 years, he's thought deeply about the choices he makes in his life and how they led, sometimes paradoxically, to the state he finds himself in. Two of the key culprits were his use of technology and his work for technology companies, a hard realization for a nerd at heart. This all-consuming, all-in work culture isn't unique to Silicon Valley. Overachievers and startup founders everywhere experience it. And it has its perils. Our speaker sees a parallel between the burnout he experienced in startups and the overuse injuries he experienced in endurance sports. In working out the overuse injury, I got a patella tendon strain, and that's from uh, too much running. And the doctor basically said, you know, you've been running too much. And at the time, I was doing uh, marathons, about a marathon a month. And he basically said, you can either uh, keep running and your knees are going to blow out, or you can stop running. It's your choice. In some ways, I might have gotten overuse injuries from startups and technology companies, too. I had overused all of the adrenaline, all of the, um, you know, intelligence, all of the burning, you know, my willpower to burn the candle at both ends. I mean, that can get you through a lot, but eventually the candle burns to the center. And then <laughs> what do you do? What do you do? This speaker has spent a lot of time answering that question, and Silicon Valley is coming to some of the same conclusions, with many companies offering meditation and yoga as tools for their people to achieve balance. And for this speaker, these aren't optional perks. They're essential. Meditation has been a key, probably one of the three most important things in my own mental health recovery. And as far as startups in Silicon Valley goes, you know, I, I was in a room last night with all startup founders. I asked how many people meditated, and over half of them did. 
And that number, I think, five years ago would have been 5 or 10%. And it's 50% today. And I think that's great. I also, as an angel investor, for the last year, I have decided that I'm not going to invest in any startups where the CEO doesn't meditate. Not that people who don't meditate can't be good CEOs. It's just that I've found such a good correlation between people who do meditate and people who have the resilience and the reserves and the skills to handle the pressure of a startup over a long period of time. It's a skill I wish I'd had in my 20s or 30s. I might not have burned out, right? Me too. <laughs> Interestingly, it was technology that turned him on to meditation, specifically the new set of smartphone apps like Headspace and Budify that take you through meditation step by step. Well, now it's available in your pocket and you can try eight different ways and find the one that you like. Frankly, that app Headspace is what got me back into trying meditation again. And I've since gone and done some different teachers and tried two or three different ways and gotten more deeper in it. But the iPhone app made me willing to want to try it again because I could try it in the privacy of my own home. I didn't have to go to a weird meditation retreat thing. There's a paradox here, which the speaker acknowledges. On the one hand, technology may bear solutions, like the meditation app he could try at home by himself. And on the other hand, technology may be the problem. I'm old enough to remember actually going to the bank and depositing a check and getting cash. Uh, I am happy that I can now get and send cash from my phone. But I also realize that missing that opportunity for social interaction, not just with the teller on the other side, but with your friends and neighbors who you see also at the bank or the post office, I'm not sure it's been a great trade. You don't do any of that stuff anymore. You, know, you probably may not even go to the grocery store. The grocery store may come to you. And, and while there are great benefits to all of those things and time and all of that, there's, there's costs that we should be talking about. There are costs to the systematic removal of social interaction in our lives. So many people find themselves lonely and isolated, but we don't necessarily connect our vague ennui to our technological choices. I wondered how this self-proclaimed nerd, this great fan of technology, deals with this problem in his own life. I don't have a mailbox at my house. I intentionally got a mailbox at one of these shared mailbox places that I have to walk through my neighborhood every day to get to. And I have to ask somebody and talk to them about, you know, chit chat in the neighborhood. It's sort of a forced social interaction to pick up my mail. It would be very easy to have it delivered to my house and not go out, but I chose something else. And for him, these choices affect not just the technology he uses, but the ones he'll choose to develop. There are also ways to build technology that can encourage those kinds of things, those kinds of social interaction. And that's where my head's at now as a Silicon Valley entrepreneur is, you know, looking for the next wave of innovation that will really connect ourselves it really enable us to be together together instead of alone together. I'm June Cohen. Thank you for listening. 
To hear more about the isolating impact of supposedly social technologies, look for Sherry Turkle's TED Talk. It's called Connected But Alone, and you can find it on TED.com. In channels on your Audible app, you'll find a playlist for meditation you can do anytime, as well as guided yoga and more mindfulness content. And if you're interested in trying one of those smartphone meditation apps, take a look at Headspace, Calm, or Budify. On the next episode of Sincerely X. When I left corporate, I assumed that in 20 years, for heaven's sake, this would be over. We would have gender equality. There would be 250 female CEOs and 250 male CEOs in the Fortune 500. And as I've witnessed in the past five years, this getting worse and worse and worse. You'll find new episodes of Sincerely X on channels in the Audible app. Original music on this program is composed by the Holiday Brothers with sound design and mix by Alex Trajano. The Sincerely X production team includes Chloe Shasha and Kelly Stetzel with help from Amy Eason and Barb Allen. Our executive producers are Darren Triff and Colin Campbell. Creative leadership comes from Chris Anderson at TED and Eric Newsom at Audible. From TED and Audible, this is Sincerely X.